book of Judges. Pastor Paul will be finishing up this series on Judges today. We'll be reading from Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, if you have one of our church Bibles, you'll find that on page 188. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. The ushers would be glad to bring you one so you can follow along. Judges chapter 2, this is what Holy Scripture says. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations 
not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. Open to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. When I was a kid, I did not understand or want to ever do book reports. Book reports made no sense to me. Why was the teacher asking me to say what was in the book? Why couldn't the teacher read the book? What did the teacher want me to do? Just rewrite the book. I didn't understand book reports. But of course, that is not what a good book report or book review is. A good reviewer reads a book and tries to nail down the main idea of all those words. A good book is going to have one main idea. And then the reviewer is going to interact with that idea, engage the idea of the book. Here's the main idea of the book. Here are my thoughts about that argument or that book. Your Bible is a book made up of 66 books. It's a kind of anthology written over many, many years and then finalized and assembled. And we have spent the last several months unpacking one of those books. That's the book called Judges. And I have suggested that the main idea, the big message in the book of Judges is this. We need a savior. We need a savior. And today, what I'd like to do is something I've never tried to do before. I'd like to finish one series and begin another all in a single sermon. I'm going to finish our series on judges and then begin our series, a topical series, on the person, Jesus Christ. So after the gloom of judges, I don't know about you, I'm looking for the glory of Jesus. (laughs) So to make this transition, I'm going to kind of give you two brief book reports that combine into one book report. I don't know if that's going to work or not. The sermon has two points to make, and they are these. Uh, The first one's going to sum up judges, and the second one's going to begin our series on Jesus. I think you'll follow along as we go. So the first thing is this. We need a Savior. That's what we stated right when we began the book of Judges, because I think one of the intentions in the book of Judges is that you sit down and you read through the whole book with your friends and your co-readers, and you get to the end and you look at one another and go, oh my, we really, really need a Savior. Not just any Savior, a real, a final, a total Savior. Not just a Savior from geopolitical struggles, but a Savior from from everything, from sin and all of its ugly consequences. Just in the book of Judges, crime, abuse, pride, stupidity, not to mention wars and rumors of wars. That's what was going on during the days of the Judges. And it's so sad because Israel is God's people with whom he has entered into formal covenant. And yet they are living lives that are full of sin, unrighteousness, and iniquities. And that's a tragedy. Why? Because God had rescued them. He'd rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, delivered them from the evil Egyptians through the parting and then the closing of the Red Sea. And now after being chastised or chastened for 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, they're brought into the promised land. 
Moses dies and Joshua is leading them into the land. They're going to systematically replace the current inhabitants of the land who are called the Canaanites or sometimes the Amorites. God had granted those Amorites four centuries, 400 years to repent and to turn to him. But they refused. And so the day of judgment has come for the Amorites. Exactly as God had told Abraham the 400 years previously that that's what he was going to do. Abraham is in the promised land before it's the promised land. He's sojourning there. And God says to him, they, your descendants, shall come back here, this promised land. That's why it's promised. (laughs) This very land in the fourth generation. But he gives the reason for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. By saying it's incomplete, he's saying, I'm going to give them more time to repent. This is the expression of God's patience. I'll give them four centuries to repent. But repent they do not. And so God is going to judge the Amorites. Think of this. He's going to judge the Amorites in the salvation of his people Israel. He's doing two things at one time. In his act of unmerited, unearned grace to Israel, he is justly judging the Amorites. But you can't miss the element of grace. It's not like Israel was constitutionally, uh, genetically, uh, internally better than the Amorites. They had the same root problems, false worship, iniquities, But God chose to save Israel. That's why, by the way, when Moses is warning the people before he dies, in Deuteronomy 9, he says this. Just just think about this. Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart after Yahweh your God has thrust them, the Amorites, out before you. Don't say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that Yahweh has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham. God's keeping a promise of judgment. And Moses is saying to Israel, you're no better than them, Israel, but I've had mercy on you. I've had grace on you. That's the difference. So Joshua leads the nation into that first wave of occupation into the promised land. And then right before he dies as an old man in his land, he charges Israel, keep going, keep going occupying the land, because remember, they're going bit by bit. And he says, don't, not only that, keep occupying the land, but make sure you don't become an Amorite. Don't become the new Canaanites. This was Joshua 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, picture old Joshua, look into the people. Now, therefore, fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. 
Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. You know what that tells us? That says that when Israel was in captivity in Egypt, they were worshiping the Egyptian idols. God, they don't, why did he rescue them out of Egypt? Because they were so great? Because they were so godly? No, he rescued them because of his grace. He pulled them out. Here's Joshua saying, get rid of those things. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father, that your father served in the region beyond the river in Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites, where we're going and whose land you dwell. And then maybe you have this plaque on your house. But as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Context is everything. God saved Israel out of Egypt. But has Egypt gotten out of the heart of Israel? Will they serve Yahweh, their Savior? That's where the book of Judges begins. Judges, saviors, deliverers. That's what the word means. That's what they are. That's what they're supposed to do. But the whole reason they were needed was because Israel failed to fully eliminate the Canaanites and Israel fully, uh, failed to fully eliminate Canaanite religion out of their hearts. They failed to do everything they were told to do and they turned from Yahweh to false gods. That is why God sent them judges. So if you're in Judges 2, drop down to around verse 13. Tim's already read the whole chapter for us. But after Joshua and his generation died, the author tells us they abandoned Yahweh, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Verse 14, Joshua judges two. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of Yahweh was against them for harm. As Yahweh had warned and as Yahweh had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And yet, they're still his people. God sent plunderers, enemies who chastised them but he did not abandon Israel. He kept his covenant with Israel. So even when he sends the hornet, he also sends the help. Not because they asked for it, but because he loves them. Verse 16, then the Lord, the Lord raised up judges. They didn't raise up their own judges. Yahweh raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered him. You cannot miss this. You, hopefully you see it having looked at the whole book. God is so kind and consistent to his promises that even when he chastises his people for utterly abandoning him and insulting him by bowing down to little statues, he has mercy on them. And he sends a rescuer from the plunderer that he also sent. That is called grace. Verse 18. Whenever Yahweh raised up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge, with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. 
But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So here's God sending these saviors, these deliverers, these judges, but they were always only temporary saviors. There was an evil bent in every man's heart in Israel. And while they would turn and seek God, especially when life was really, really tough, they would quickly turn back to their sins again when life got easy. Uh, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Is that just me? <laughs> if we're totally honest, if we're totally honest, we know that bent towards sin, unrighteousness, just lurks under the surface in our hearts too. And even though we have been saved out of our slavery to sin, we too often, like Israel, we want to go back to Egypt. Oh, I want the leeks and onions. Really? I mean, when things are hard, we cry out. And when things get easy, where's that old idol of mine? Hmm. The thing we're supposed to be amazed about in the book of Judges is that God keeps sending saviors. He just keeps doing it. Twelve of them in the book of Judges. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, then Deborah. Deborah, who's got a you know, cowardly barrack to work with her and hammer-swinging JL ends that whole problem. Then there's Gideon with his scary fleeces, are you going to be with me or not, God, and then getting whittled down to 300 lappers who defeats a massive invading army and then makes an ephod and all Israel whores after it. And there's Tola and Jair and Jephthah, the son of a prostitute, the marauding warrior who raises up an army and against the oppressors, again, delivers Israel, but because of his vow has to devote his daughter to a life of singleness, Ibsen, Elon, Abdon, Samson, the man of weakness, but supernatural physical strength, who basically on his own holds back the Philistines for his whole life, eventually destroys more of them in his death than he ever did in his life, but his life ends with his eyes gouged out under a heap of suicidal rubble. In other words, none of these saviors were well, normal. Some were arrogant, some were fearful, some were pragmatic. They were all flawed and they brought about partial deliverances, temporary salvations that did not last. And even when those deliverances were accomplished, it wasn't like every soul in Israel suddenly turned back into heart loyalty to Yahweh. We know that because as soon as the judge died, off they go back to their idols. And then our author of the book of Judges ends it with two very sad and miserable events. They happened sometime in the early history of the Judges. We don't know when. The Rent-A-Rev Levite who goes with the tribe of Dan and takes out the unsuspecting city of Laish. And then there's the bait-and-switch Levite who throws his wife to the perverts of Gibeah then dismembers her body and draws Israel into civil war that almost robs Israel of one of her tribes, thereby robbing God of keeping the promises. 
It's, and then that, that outcome is only avoided by more kidnapping and rape. The whole thing is bad. These are supposed to be the days of conquest and victory and peace and shining like a light for all the other nations to see. Look how good it is to follow Yahweh. But it is all a repeating cycle of failure. The book of Judges accomplishes two things. First, here is a vivid picture of who we are. And secondly, here's proof that humans can't save themselves. You should feel a sense of despair when you get to the end of the book of Judges. Can you imagine if the Bible ended with Judges? <laughs> Praise God, it does not. But you get to the end of Judges, God is helping you to feel how bad the human race is. These are not merely accounts of ancient people and their backward ways. This is us. This is humanity on display. Not in the details of historical peculiarities. It's humanity's heart on display. And as we saw, all we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. It would take a, a remarkable amount of arrogance to deny that. <laughs> You're going to tell me that you, you live for God 100% of the time? I don't think so. Anyway, season, season of judges ends, and that begins the season of monarchy. God allows Israel a human king. Saul is appointed king. He's a self-serving, man-fearing disaster. David comes after him. He's about as good as you ever get, but he's got these drastic moral failures. And then Solomon, his son, is king. He's prudent and stupid all at the same time. And by the time you get to the fourth king, uh, the, there's, the, the kingdom divides. Now there's multiple kings. You read through the book of Kings and Chronicles. Once in a while, you read something like this. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not with a whole heart. <laughs> and that were the good kings. There weren't very many of them. How about all the bad kings? There are far more bad kings than there are good. Men like Manasseh, of whom it was said, listen to this, he has done more evil than all that the Amorites did. Those Amorites, the people had 400 years to repent. The ones who God judged, and he, because by grace he saved his people and plopped them down in that land. And that king did more evil than all of what those Amorites did. So you have failed judges, failed kings. God then sends prophets Men set apart by God to call Israel back to him. And yet prophets like Isaiah, great prophet, was told, yeah, you know, by the way, it's not going to work. <laughs> He's commissioned by God. Here am I, Lord. Send me. And the Lord says to him, go and say to this people, keep on hearing and do not understand. Keep on seeing and do not perceive. His whole ministry. Prophets came, prophets failed. Priests came, 
What do priests have to do? They have to keep making sacrifices for their own sins as well as the sins of all the people. Judges came, they had limited success, temporary success. Kings came, none reigned without sin or failure somewhere along the line. And the entire Old Testament ends on this sour note. When is this going to end? When will everything be made right? When will the effectual prophet, the sinless priest, and the righteous king finally come? And then there are another 400 years of silence from heaven. No kings, no prophets, no word from God. Until Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Would you turn there? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well then, who is this? We end judges by saying we need a savior. We begin our series on Jesus by saying we got a savior. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We got a savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is a title, it means Messiah, the anointed one. It's the, in, in the Old Testament literature, he's the promised deliverer, the promised savior, the final one, the real judge, the true savior. He's also called here a son of Abraham, meaning he's, he's a true Jew, he's a true Israelite descending through the line of Abraham. Not only that, he's a son of David, meaning he descends from the line or the family of, of David, making him an heir to the kingly throne. And then you get this three-part genealogy where, where Matthew is essentially proving this, this man, Jesus, he is the promised Savior. But what a genealogy. I, I, I'm, I'm nervous of all these like online things, but I know you can go on, type in your name, find out like who all your relatives are. I'm convinced. Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, you know, in uh, my family history, we've got... Uh, uh, we, we have this dictator, and uh, we, we had this vagrant, and uh, we, we had this prostitute, and uh, we just kind of, like, no, what do people do when they're telling about their family? You know, my family, my family has a castle in Scotland. Uh, come on, you've never been there. They wouldn't let you in if you knocked on the door. You don't have a castle in Scotland. You know, I am related to Gandhi. Okay, whatever. Uh, what do we do when we're thinking about genealogies? We're like hunting for like, I'm famous somewhere. <laughs> but this genealogy, this genealogy, instead of describing all the greats of Jesus' forebears, it's like Matthew is going to great lengths to point out the most flawed and sinful among them. That doesn't sound very promising, does it? Or does it? Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Oh, who was Tamar? Oh, just Judah's unjustly jilted daughter-in-law who dressed up like a prostitute so she could have intercourse with her father-in-law and get pregnant and give birth to twins. 
Those are the kinds of stories polite company doesn't like to talk about. But here it is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who was Rahab? Oh, the city prostitute of Jericho, the one person who was not destroyed when the Israelites came into the promised land. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Who was Ruth? Just a non-Jew, widowed Moabite, historically always enemies to the people of Israel, who remained loyal to her widowed Jewish mother-in-law, returned penniless to Israel. Once there, she essentially offered herself to a rich dude she barely knew. Thankfully, he was a righteous guy and a good man who married her, but it was all quite the talk of the town at the time. And then their son, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who was that? Well... That is Bathsheba, the rooftop bather, with whom David committed adultery while he arranged to have her husband accidentally killed in warfare. Their first son together died in infancy, but then they had Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, who's the father of Manasseh. Which Manasseh, the one we saw a minute ago, the king who did all, did more evil than all the Amorites that God had kicked out of the land. 2 Kings 21.2, he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh according to the despicable practices of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. He shed innocent blood in the land. That's not much to be proud of. Not much of a kingly line. Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, Josiah, Jeconiah. Then the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, and Shealtiel, and Zerubbabel, Abiad, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Elad, Eleazar, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Who was Mary? Just a virgin who one day told her betrothed, her engaged, um, I'm pregnant and I'm still a virgin. This was a story that was apparently very well known in Jesus' adult life. In John chapter 8, verse 41, some of his enemies were questioning him and they eventually say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. The implication being, Obviously, you were. We know about Mary, pregnant before wed. And yet we know there was no sexual immorality in this conception. It was a remarkable miracle. For it was from the Virgin Mary of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. What has Matthew done here in this genealogy? I think he has done something remarkable. He has laid out for you that this Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, comes from a long line of sinners. All the same kind of people that we read about in Judges. All the same kind of people that are sitting here in this room and standing. 
But this man was born of a virgin. While his legal father was Joseph, his eternal father was God. He was the son before a son. That's why Matthew says, Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She had been told this would happen. Drop down to Luke 1, verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Presumably, she told this to Joseph and Joseph was like, okay. Uh, Verse 19, her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame could have really made her life miserable, resolved to divorce her quietly, call off the engagement. But as he considered these things, this is Matthew 1, 19, verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The the doctrine we're looking at here is called the virgin birth, the incarnation. God, the eternal son, taking on human flesh, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. And what is most important for us to observe today is the origin and the status of the baby in Mary's womb. He had no earthly father. Rather, he was conceived in Mary from the Holy Spirit. It was not a sexual act. It was a miracle. The angel said to her, verse 35 again, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This nearly poetic kind of language teaches us that God miraculously caused a virgin to become pregnant with God. And he is doing this in order to save his people from their sins, not from Canaanites, Amorites, or even Roman occupiers. He is doing this to save his people from their sins. It had to be this way. If Jesus had been conceived by Mary and Joseph, natural means, he would have been only another ordinary sinful man. If he had been merely made a man without human conception, he he would have been perfect God masquerading as man. But being born of the virgin miraculously conceived from the Holy Spirit, the child himself was able to be both fully human and fully divine. The fully human bit seems pretty obvious to us, birth, childhood, growth into adulthood, but the fully divine aspect comes first by message only. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Holy precisely because he is God. Son of God being a title that means of the same nature and being as God. Or as the angel goes on to explain it to Joseph in verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, in case you miss it, which means God with us. God with us. 
The virgin birth is this grand interruption in the storyline of your Bible. Centuries, millennia of people being born under sin is interrupted. Since Adam, every son or daughter of Adam has been born under sin, under its sway, under its influence, under its control, so that even the very best of us were still sinners at our start and sinners in our core. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, when he says Jews and Greeks, he means the people of Israel and the rest of the world. <laughs> Greeks is just a way of talking about everybody else in the whole world. It doesn't just mean Jewish people and Greek people. Just everybody. This comprehensive statement. We've already charged that all Jews and Greeks are under sin. For it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Think, well, I, I, I think I might be the one. He goes on. No, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Why is that, Paul? Why are you telling us that? Why are you telling the Romans that? Romans 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all sin because we're born under sin. We confirm what is theologically true. It's why Paul goes on in Romans 5, he says, this, this man, Adam, many died through one man, Adam's trespass. And because of Adam's trespass, death reigned. By, the, by Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Our representative, whether you knew it or not, your representative Adam sinned. Therefore, every single descendant of Adam is born a sinner. We are all fundamentally sinners because of Adam. But this virgin birth of Jesus, this interruption to the normal means of conception, enabled a real person to be born who was without sin. He was not born under sin's influence or sway. The effects of the dreaded curse in Genesis 3 did not transfer to Jesus, 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin. 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus is a sinless savior. So here is the first man since Adam who was born innocent. But unlike the first Adam, this second Adam, Jesus, the greater Adam, was innocent and faithful. Emmanuel, the sinless son of God. Because he, he wasn't hampered by indwelling sin. He, he was capable of living a life of sinless, complete obedience to his father. It's why he, he turned to people and he said this about himself. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. It's just a way of saying, I obey everything God says. Everything, without exception. One of the most important things Jesus came to do was fulfill the requirements of the law. Remember, God gives the law to his Old Testament people. And Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is not just a sinless savior, he is a law-fulfilling savior. As Paul made clear to the Romans, think the law, think 10 commandments. The law is holy and righteous and good. That's the law, there's no problem with the law. To say do not murder, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good, it's holy, it's righteous, it's true. There's just a problem with us. 
Because instead of leading us to God, our sinful nature reacted to the law the way your body reacts to a medication that you're allergic to and didn't know. You take the medication and, and, and it actually leads to you getting worse. It has the opposite effect. So the law ends up showcasing our sin, exposing our sin, shining a light on our sin. But Christ, fully God, fully man, was able to fulfill the law in both its particulars and in its spirit. He fulfilled all righteousness. This is so important. He did all that was required of us. No other judge, no other prophet, no other king could have ever done that for you. And he didn't do it for himself, he did it for you. Jesus is a sinless savior, a law-fulfilling savior. He is a representative savior. He represents us before God. Who do you want standing as your representative, Adam or Jesus? He, He accomplishes righteousness. He fulfills everything the law commands. And then it's like he bundles that all up and hands it to you as a gift. Not only does he remove our sin and our guilt by dying in our place on the cross, he credits then to our account all his positive righteousness, his positive obedience. So that when God looks on a Christian, when God looks on a Christian, he sees us as if we have no guilt, no sin, because the cross took care of that. He sees us as if we have fulfilled, done all that the law demands because the obedience of Jesus took care of that. That, friends, is exactly what you need. And obviously, that's exactly what we could never do for ourselves. We need a Savior. And we got one. He came and he did everything necessary for us to be with God forever. Is he your Savior? It's one thing to know about him. That won't get you to heaven. I know about Germany. I can't just move there. I need to become German. Have you repented from your sins? Have you really? Have you you, you looked to God and say, here's all my sins? And, and I, re, I renounce them all. I reject them all. Is, is your plan in the great day of judgment that's coming for every human being who ever lives, is your plan in that day to say, oh, look at what I've done? Or is your plan to say, Father, look at what he has done. One of those will get you to glory. One will lead you to hell. You need a savior. I know it's hard to believe. God has provided himself to be our savior. The one we offended, the one we turned from, the one we've rejected provides himself to be our savior. Is Jesus your representative before God? You need a sinless Savior. You need a law-fulfilling Savior. You need a curse-absorbing Savior. 
That is why Jesus is the only Savior the world is ever going to get. It takes God to save us. John. It is this Savior, brother, who you need to live for. Not just in your three months here, but in St. Thomas, too. It is this Savior you need to preach, and it is this Savior you need to be willing to die for. Along with every other man who dares to become one of his under-shepherds. But at the end of your life and your ministry, John, may it be said, that man was all about Jesus Christ. Here's my book report on the Bible. This book is about Jesus. The pre-incarnate Christ appears in the book of Judges. We read about it in Judges 2. And he asks, what is this you have done? The incarnate Jesus appears in the New Testament. And he invites, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. I will give you rest. We need a Savior. God has provided a Savior. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. What child is this that laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This. This is Christ, the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary, the greater prophet, the greater priest, the greater king, and the one who has done all that we need. Let's pray together.